Friends, colleagues, and those still hanging on to that little bit of youth, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm excited to have Alina Dixon on. She is a friend of the show and someone I've been waiting to have on, and there's just been scheduling conflicts after scheduling conflicts. And so this long-awaited collaboration has finally occurred. She comes on to talk about her work on global development, specifically on youth peace building. So new area that we've never really talked about on this podcast, I don't know much about. So I hope that if you're interested, you'll tune in and enjoy this awesome episode of very friendly chatter about the gray zones of global development and all the areas that are related to how we advocate for peace building within the youth and within the the power structures that we have within our uh, developing world. An update from your podcast hosts. I am currently drowning in dissertation work and I apologize that I didn't put out an episode last week. Uh, Excited to have this going back again. And for those OG podcast listeners that remember there was a co-host on the show and a co-creator Kyle Gooderham he may be making an appearance sooner than you think Uh, again he's got a young baby boy who he's been looking after with his beautiful wife uh, and they are finally stabilizing so Kyle may be showing up for another episode recording soon uh, and we do hope to have him on uh, a little bit more frequently uh, in the future if it works out for him if not you might be stuck with me for the long and foreseeable future um otherwise thanks again i appreciate everybody that's tuning in and if you like the episode please do check us out on instagram twitter uh leave us a like or a review on itunes apple podcast i don't think you can do that on spotify yet i'm hoping that they add that sometime soon um otherwise have an amazing day night morning whenever you're listening and here comes the intro Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Drake. And today we have a friend of the show, a long-awaited guest. We've been playing uh, email tag for a while. I've been dropping the ball, waiting for Alina to come on. She's ready to come on now. Um, It's Alina Dixon. She's a PhD candidate in global developmental studies at Queen's University, and her research focuses on youth peace building. Alina, thank you for coming on and waiting for me <laughs> to get you on. <laughs> no, thank you so much. I feel like we've both kind of like gone back and forth. Like I wasn't ready when you were ready. So it's great to yeah. be here and I'm glad we yeah. were able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long awaited, uh, <laughs> a long awaited episode. So I'm glad you're here. Alina, you've got some really unique work uh, that we've never covered on the on the podcast. And honestly, I had not really heard too much <laughs> about before I had met you uh, about this kind of research. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, significant implications that you're doing uh, with the work that you're doing. Tell us a little about what global developmental studies are and what what that is. Yeah, it's kind of a funny question. And when you said you were going to ask it, I was like, fuck, because <laughs> people, I feel like people all the time are asking to define what is global development studies. And the funny thing mm-hmm. is, I feel like there's not really a one catch-all definition. And we joke all the time in our department of like, we try to be everything and anything it really it's very interdisciplinary it pulls from a lot of different areas and different foci um but i think and and then there's different approaches to it as well i mean at the very kind of core of it it's looking at how we as a human civilization have progressed over time and where we're going um in the future and obviously a lot of the focus on in global development is on the developing world the third world um, the subaltern places in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, some places in Southeast Asia. 
these are types of the kinds of places that typically get associated with where development is done. Um, but the school of thought that I kind of come from and, and where I think Queens, my kind of home university is, is situated, is within this really critical school of development studies where we're sort of critiquing what development means. And we're constantly asking like, well, what is development? What should development be? Is it just these kind of like economic and very tangible processes of how a country or a nation or a people kind of develop over time? Or is it more sort of social and cultural and how traditions develop and evolve and the influence of different powers in the global system and how they sort of operate? Um, so it's a lot of questions of kind of where have we been, where are we going, and who gets to kind of decide their trajectory. But I come from a very critical school of thought that looks a lot at different power relations, uh, the relationship between the global north and the global south, and kind of critiquing all of the things that are kind of encompassed in that um, global mm -hmm. capitalism, patriarchy, all of these big questions. Um, so that's where I situate. But really, I think at the end of the day, global development studies can be pretty much anything you want it to be. There's kind of a home for anyone if you're interested in how the world works. Um, mm. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's yeah, like no. really a non-answer, but <laughs> that's the best I can it, do. I mean, <laughs> that's the best non-answer I've ever received. So, I mean, um, when it comes down to, I mean, if you ask about any field of study, it's hard to, you know, pin it down to one line of research, right? Because psychology, there's a million things that you do when you're studying humans as well, right? You're, you're looking at development as a whole across the globe. So, I mean, there's a lot there that, that is required to kind of explain. So you did a good job. <laughs> with this, with this, I am not a cultured man. I'll admit that. I, I do not travel. I do not know what's going on around the world. As a researcher, how much do you need to kind of have your finger on the pulse on what's going on around the world in different different areas? Because that seems like, you know, with global development, you must have a basic understanding or a more in-depth knowledge of what's going on in each area, each pockets of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. Um, I think there's a, a debate within development studies, too, in regards to the um, the importance of area studies, like how is it, how important is it that you are an expert in, like, I work in, in East Africa mostly, so how is important is it that you have a lot of really in-depth knowledge about, you know, two or three specific countries, or is this kind of general knowledge of general global processes more important? Um, mm -hmm. So I think it depends kind of where you fall on the spectrum. Um, but I mean, I would say, I think you have to have kind of a curiosity for what's going on in the world and how it works. Um, mm -hmm. I've never really been one to prescribe to this idea of like the expert in a certain area, especially when you're not from that area. And this is kind of getting mm -hmm. into knowledge politics, which I know we'll talk about later, but it just seems really weird to me to be able to say like, I'm an expert in East African mm -hmm. politics as a white woman from the global North who's only spent like several months at a time in one of these countries. So I think there's a curiosity that comes with it of like, how do things work? How are things going on? But like, if you were to ask me about what's happening in some random country in the world, I would have probably no more knowledge than anyone else, other than when it comes to like a few countries that I study specifically very in depth. But I think yeah. it's just like this willingness to kind of engage with what's happening and, and to try and relate it to see how things that happen all over the world are all very much interconnected. And they're all part of these same processes and these same um, dynamics as well is all kind of part mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of work do you do as in the global development of studies? What does the research look like? So what kind of questions are you asking? How are you asking them? And like, what are you getting at? Because it seems like you could be, 
you know, falling within the psychological realm, the sociological realm, the anthropological realm, historical, like there's a lot of things that you kind of can be pulling with with global development. So what do the studies look like and how do you go? How do you most studies go about getting their results? Mm-hmm. I think it's a really big um, it's a big range, which is why I say you mm-hmm. can be like anything in development studies. So, I mean, in our field, we have or in our kind of department, I guess we have people who are situated very much within kind of the cultural and sociological sort of field. But then we also have people who are more into some of the kind of like harder sciences, the political economy, the ecology, the economics, all of these types of things. And the methods that people will use are very different. So while some of us will rely a lot on fieldwork, being on the ground, doing qualitative interviews with people, asking very open-ended kind of subjective questions, there's other people within the same department who will base a lot of their research on Um, more quantitative things, looking at archival work, looking more with hard data, doing quantitative kind of numbers work and all that thing. And that's all stuff I I can't really touch on. (laughs) That's not my area. I'm very much in the kind of loosey-goosey, open-ended questions. How do you think about this? How does this work? Never really reaching kind of a definitive endpoint. The Hmm. the importance is just kind of how we think, why we think, kind of the the messiness of, of the qualitative work is kind of where I find the most comfort. My partner yeah. and I actually always joke where he he likes kind of the black and white a lot more. Like every question has to have an answer. There have to be particular steps you follow where I love the gray zone. I love not getting a definitive answer. I love when things don't have a nice, neat conclusion. I like when things are kind of messy and I think that's because I think that's where things come to life is is the messiness the gray and the kind of inconclusions oftentimes because mm-hmm. life is life is complicated so I think our work should reflect that to some extent yeah yeah absolutely I, I think uh you know there's a lot of value in hearing people's opinions and hearing their experiences and then under trying to understand what's going on from those so with that being said Alina let's let's get into a little more qualitative ass- ass- assessment here what is your work specifically? Let's let's explain what you're doing, and then we're gonna we're gonna be defining what it is because I uh, it also has some unique stuff that people probably haven't heard about yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my work it shifted a lot because of COVID. Um, my work is I'm sure like yours as well. I'm very much a, a I don't want to say fatality because that sounds really catastrophic, but I was a I was a symptom of COVID in many ways in terms of yeah. of the research and what it meant for how I was going to do my project. So initially, I had set out and I had this really elaborate but a project that I had been planning for years where I was going to go back to northern Uganda where I did my master's field work and I was going to do something called a photo voice project. Um, so I'm interested in, in young people and, and how they contribute to peace building. So I was going to go with a bunch of cameras, spend several weeks working with a group of young people, having them take pictures of different aspects of their life. And then we would talk about these things, learn how they kind of navigate their own social worlds and what it means for the peace building process and what it means in a post-conflict society more broadly, all of these wonderful things. But of course with COVID, those plans have been completely squashed. Um, <laughs> so we've rejigged in the last um, year or so. And now my project kind of has zoomed out a little bit and is asking kind of even broader questions of looking at what is peace building? How do we think about it? What do we associate with it? And what does it mean for how young people engage with these different processes? What are young people doing or not doing that contributes or takes away from the peace process? And what does this tell us kind of more broadly in terms of what we understand to be peace building and legitimate peace building? 
So that's kind right. of where I'm I'm at right now. Hell yeah. Well, a forceful rejig is always good sometimes, uh, especially under these circumstances. So what what is peace building then? You, you said the word, uh, I can assume what it is, but what does it really entail? What is peace building in, in its entirety? Mm-hmm. So my, my answer to this question um, is, I'm actually going to turn it around and I want to ask you, when you think <laughs> of peace building, what do you think of? Like, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Because my what I think of as peace building is sort of a critique of what I think peace building it often is associated as. Okay, a typical qualitative researcher response. <laughs> uh, textbook, Alina. Um, what is peace building to me? It sounds like whenever there's, uh, specifically in like um, countries that are, have conflict or uh, either wartime or um, political strife, it's w- when certain groups are trying to create some sort of solution. Um, be it uh, organized rallies and, um, you know, uh, protests, possibly peaceful protests, um, and probably just education, a lot of education on like how to, it seems like probably more of like a liberals versus conservatives trying (laughs) to kind of tell one of the sides why they're right. (laughs) And then trying to be like, okay, you should you should agree with me. So then we're going to be happy now. That's what it sounds like to me, which is probably a hard thing to do in practice. Yeah, no, I think this is like, it's that's totally what is often assumed as peace building this really like, formal kind of static process between like two warring factions coming together and trying to figure out how to move forward. Very Mm -hmm. structured, very um, kind of top-down, state-led often. Um, yeah. It's often, you know, the UN is often involved in um, mediating this relationship. It's often between, uh, like, government officials, military groups, um, elites of other kinds, be they political, economic, military, etc. Um, so this very kind of, like, rigid process that happens very much at a kind of top level. Um, it's figuring out how to move forward and then there seems to be, in my opinion, this assumption that we do all these things at like a state level, at this kind of elite level, and it's just going to trickle down. So we get the two warring factions to come together. They agree on a ceasefire or a peace deal or something, and then it's done. And then now we have peace and people will just move forward. And I think that's often what peace building gets associated as. Yeah. But my opinion is that that's a very limited understanding of peace building. And these, not that these processes and these kinds of things are not important, but that this kind of trickle down effect often doesn't take place. And you can have a ceasefire, you can have a peace deal, you can have a peace arrangement, all of these great things in place. But if people are not finding new ways of living together on a day to day basis, finding new ways to interact with their neighbors, people down the street that they were formerly kind of in conflict with, then whatever those peace processes are just going to be completely meaningless. So for me, peace building is something that happens much more in the day to day. It's much more kind of mundane, more informal, very organic, very casual. But that's really where any type of formal peace process really comes to life. So I don't think they're in opposition, but I just think the way that we often think about peace building is very limited. Um, And oftentimes unsuccessful, like you see all over the world where you have peace agreements, you have ceasefires, but then a few years, several years later, it's kind of things have not improved. Um, Mm -hmm. So and I think that's where kind of this more bottom up sort of grassroots level type of peace building is really important. Yeah, I I think of like, programs or like things are being implemented in communities to 
either reduce discrimination or prejudice uh, and, you know, conflict within the communities. I just, I'm curious to see like, what's the most effective manner of doing such like, you know, actually seeing effect in communities. I've talked to a couple of psychologists about, you know, the idea of having contact uh, and how having contact with somebody with in a different or an out group that you previously didn't associate with, or maybe carried prejudices towards um, like, for example, uh, if you're homophobic and you have a cousin or a child that is uh, identifies as uh, non-heterosexual, you're more likely to change your perspective on that and, you know, be an ally in a sense, because you have contact with them. That's not really feasible for a lot of people in certain communities, right? Where there there's less people that are um, they can have contact with, and they're less likely to engage in that kind of contact. What's what are we? What do you find? I guess within the qualitative research of you know connecting with people and how that plays a role in peace building, and what what is the most effective forms of peace building? I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I want to say first of all, I think that what you're talking about from a kind of a psychological perspective makes a lot of sense, and I think that type of model, like if we just put people together in a room and get them to sort of talk with each other, that will be enough. Um, and I think one of a really popular mechanism that's been used in a lot of places, um, I'm thinking with is uh, Israelis and Palestinians, as well as in Northern Ireland after the troubles were these structured dialogue sessions where they would take people who were in opposition with each other, so to speak, put them in a room together and have this very like kind of structured formal discussion where they would talk to each other about their own experiences and try to learn from each other to see the other side. And at least in the Northern Ireland context, which I've been reading a bit about for this this paper, as you know, um, oftentimes these were seen as like a huge failure. They just didn't work. Um, okay. You can put people so in they a weren't room. gaining perspective from each other by talking to each other. Sometimes, yes, but I think the biggest thing was it wasn't lasting. You can have a few, like a 20 minute conversation with someone, but that doesn't really change much in terms of your day to day of how you go about interacting with someone. And I will also say, I'm not a peace practitioner, so I don't really have experience like conducting these things myself. As a, as a social scientist, I just kind of look at them and critique them and poke holes in them. That's, <laughs> that's my comfort zone. <laughs> but I think the point of, of what my work right now is trying to say is especially when it comes to young people, at least, oftentimes when we do things like a structured dialogue session, it's this model that's imposed upon them. So someone mm. somewhere decided that this was an effective model based on X theory. They designed it. They came to these young people and said, here, we're going to do this and you're going to kind of take it and then you're going to be learn how to live together. But what I'm saying is that these kinds of models that are externally um envisioned and then kind of they come to a community and you implement it are really ineffective because they're not organic in any sense and instead when it comes to young people is not only do we need to include them in these processes by say doing something like a dialogue session but they need to start from their perspective themselves so what would be a meaningful way for young people to engage with people that needs to be the starting question of going to them and saying how can we do this how do you want to do this how do you think we should kind of proceed and then moving forward as as opposed to kind of taking this perspective of no young people don't know what they're talking about they have nothing to add to this conversation we're the ones we are the experts we're going to design it and then we'll give it to them um that's kind of my perspective of you know the young people have an understanding of conflict they're incredibly impacted when conflict happens they're aware of what's going on they have a lot greater understanding of their circumstances than we often give them credit for and they need to be part of 
not just peace processes, but designing the peace processes, being architects of those things themselves, which I think a lot of people will find quite radical. Like, you know, talking to a 12 year old of like, how do you think we should move forward? Seems like a crazy idea, but I think there's something there in terms of taking their voices and their experiences a little bit more seriously. Definitely. What is youth? And, and, and because there's a lot of difference in what I mean, they're all perceptive, like it's, it's it's undeniable that kids are perceptive of their environment, and they're taking so much in. When should we be engaging? What's the what's the thought process of engaging with youth? Do we engage and ask for feedback for different like groups like, uh, you know, four to eight? eight to 12, whatever. Uh, what's, what's the, what's the belief right now in the literature? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Youth is another one of these really like kind of fluid concepts. Are we still youth, Alina? <laughs> I don't think we are. Right. It depends. <laughs> it depends how you define youth. To me, I am very much still a youth. I'm almost 30, but I would say I'm not. We're holding on to young adulthood. still, <laughs> just clinging, clinging on. on. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's, I, in some places I've seen youth defined up to like 35 or 40. But I think what defines a youth is the kind of social context and the meaning that's given to what it means to be an adult. So if to be an adult, I mean, you can say it's 18 plus, but what does that actually look like? What things should you have achieved by the time that you're able to say you're an adult? Often it's, you know, you finish school, you have a job, you're economically kind of independent to some extent. Um, you maybe you are married or have a serious partner you own a home some all these different kind of social contextual things shape what it means to be a child versus a youth versus an adult so one of the things that i've um, looked a little bit at is what it means to be a youth in an east african context and a very significant part of what it means to move from this sort of childhood youthhood realm into adult is the ability to own land to have a partner and to kind of build your, your home, your homestead for that person and to support them financially. But of course, because of economic deprivation, because of land crises and, and land conflicts, lots of people aren't able to get a piece of land, to build a home, to have a job, to pay um, the bride price, to support a wife, all these things. So they're in many ways, they're at an age where they should be an adult. But because of these sort of structural issues, they're not quite able to make that transition. So they're kind of stuck mm. in some sense. Um, and so you ask, like, are we youth? Again, like, I'm still in school. I don't have a full-time job. <laughs> Sometimes I would ask my parents for money. Like, I would say yeah. I'm, I feel like an adult in a lot of ways, but there's these kind of societal and structural things that people say, this is what makes an adult that I have not yet attained. Right. So, I mean, I've seen youth defined in terms of ages from, like, 12 to 35 up to 40. It's this huge range, but I think more so than just the, the sort of number it's the social context, it's the um, societal context that shapes what it means to be an adult. And this right. becomes really tricky, obviously, in, in times of conflict, because the experience of going through conflict, of experiencing conflict, maybe being involved in it firsthand as a, as a, as a soldier, or what have you, then shapes what it means to be an adult even. Going through the experience of conflict means you have experiences akin to adulthood. You have the shared experience with other adults. And therefore, you're not really a child anymore. So it really kind of complicates this and makes it very messy. But again, I think recognizing that and recognizing the way that conflict shapes what it means to be a young person means taking those experiences seriously because they've gone through them just like 
many adults have as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So is there an age at, at a certain point where at least in the literature or across different countries that people at the context is interesting because it's kind of seems like some countries or some regions might have it where, you know, we have adults at, you know, the age of 12 or the age of 15, where they're really taking on these adult like roles uh, because of the context that they're in. Right. What age you know, is very common for people to say, okay, now we're going to start taking your perspective more critically. Is it, is it 12? Is it, you know, is there a limit to like asking a four or five year old what their perspective is? Because that could have a lot of value too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think 18 is pretty much the international standard for adulthood. Um, Mm. That gets, I mean, that obviously gets critiqued in a lot of ways. Um, I also work on a project with, um, women who have had sexual encounters with peacekeepers in the DRC and the age of 18 being the age of kind of internationally recognized consent is a big issue in that context because you can have women who are 14, 15 who are, you know, all everything else being equal are consenting to these relationships, but because they are technically under 18, it's considered non-consensual and rape. But that's, that's a huge kind of societal contextual issue in terms of when we think someone is able to consent. So, I mean, I think 18 is like a pretty standard, like legalistic type of of, of barometer. But um, I would say go as young as you need to. Talk to a four or five-year-old. I mean, you Mm -hmm. see people doing things like this um, in some contexts, having young people like do pictures and drawings and these kind of art-based things to be able to access the experiences that they've had in conflict. So sure, 18, but I'm a proponent of going as young as you need to, to encapsulate everybody who's been affected by a conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about your work within Northern Ireland and talk Mm -hmm. about, first off, let's, could you give a little bit of context as to what was going on, what the troubles are? Because not a lot of people, not not, not everybody will know about that. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not like a huge expert. I wrote this paper as kind of like a side project. Um, So I have kind of a base understanding of the troubles, but it's this period Mm -hmm. um, in the 80s and early 90s of sectarian violence between um, Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's often described as um, like a religious conflict between um, Catholics and Protestants, but obviously there's a lot of political dynamics that kind of um, are situated underneath that. So I think the religious um, connotation is is, is a bit limited, but basically this period of of kind of intense violence um, in Northern Ireland um, that went on for, I think a couple decades in all, about 20 years or so. So, Um, that's probably the extent of my knowledge yeah. on the troubles, but a really, a really kind of brutal time in the history. And I would add as well, I think there's been a bit of talk recently of kind of renewed violence in the country. So I think it's a conflict that, again, they had a ceasefire, things kind of ended, so to speak. But I think these tensions between these groups have been sort of bubbling ever since, um, which is part of what kind of spurred me to write this as well, because I, I would argue that I don't think meaningful lasting peace was necessarily totally achieved because we see kind of a resurgence of these things and then i read that it's i mean i've i haven't experienced it personally but from what i've read it's this context of kind of um walking on eggshells where these things are there they're kind of under the surface and you sort of know what to talk about and whatnot so life goes on but there's kind of this underlying sense of tension to some extent still yeah i mean when you have different groups of individuals that have very unique 
beliefs that they dis- like vehemently disagree with each other. Just because someone says, oh, we're, we're, we're peaceful now, doesn't mean that all the discrimination, that prejudice and those biases are going to disappear overnight, right? So, <laughs> so what does, um, what's the paper that you propose and what does, you know, what does youth peace building kind of need to be uh, to benefit us as a community or, or, you know, countries as a whole? Mm-hmm. So the paper I wrote um, is on this TV show called Dairy Girls. Um, and it's situated in the time of the Troubles, and it follows these four girls, uh, Michelle, Orla, Erin, and Claire, and Michelle's cousin James, um, as they sort of navigate their daily lives against the backdrop of the Troubles. Um, and what spurred me to write it was, I mean, it was partly a COVID project. It was something to distract myself while I could not do my own work. Um, but I remember the first time I watched this show thinking like, there's something here. This is like a very, it's a funny show. It's, it's a comedy. It's very witty. It's very lighthearted. But I remember thinking like, there's something here. There's something to be said for peace building in this paper. And ultimately what I think the show, why the show is useful for a, a more academic and theoretical context is it has a lot of commentary on the exclusion of young people. Sort of running theme throughout the show is the way that these girls and James are very aware of what's happening around them. They sort of are engaged with the troubles in their own ways. It impacts their daily lives and kind of how they go about things um, and through school and, and their personal relationships, et cetera, et cetera. But they're continually like infantilized and excluded from any type of decision making. And this was kind of the point that I latched onto is that, you know, these, these young people know what's going on. They have important knowledge about this conflict and what peace should look like but they're never taken seriously. They're just kind of like rebuked by all of the adults that, that operate in their, in their lives. So that was kind of the Mm -hmm. point that I kind of took a hold of and then obviously like built out a little bit, but it was that point of exclusion and like infantilization that I thought was very relevant. Yeah. And so, and so what is, what is the impact of that kind of almost ageism or like infantilization? Like you're, you're basically discrediting the youth's voices here whenever we're talking about peace, peace building. So what, what needs to be done? What has been done to improve that youth peace building piece of, you know, peace building, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or the youth involvement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I say in the paper is it's these narratives or these frames of protectionism and vulnerability that are really, that really kind of stilt our ability to take young people seriously. So you think about the way young people all over the world are, are talked about, often it's in time, it's in these frames of like, they need to be protected, they're so yeah. vulnerable. I mean, you look at like the World Vision ads, any kind of sort of charity appeal is often targeted at young people, these images of young people suffering, ch- small children suffering. So there's this kind of discourse of, of protection and, and they're so weak and frail and we as adults need to kind of do something to help them. Um, And at the same time, there's also this other kind of frame of violence of young people. So when young people kind of step out of this protectionist or vulnerability frame and take action, then they're seen as dangerous. You look at um, like the uh, North African riots several years ago, people were seen as very dangerous. You look at Black Lives Matter even in the US and all the young people that were marching there and the discourses of like danger I mean, there's a racial undertone to this as well that cannot be ignored, obviously. But I also don't think you can discredit the fact that a lot of these people were young people. And when they step outside of these kind of 
comfortable normative frames of like, we need to protect them and control them, et cetera, et cetera. And they yeah. act out, they're seen as, as quite violent. Um, so we have sort of these two um, antagonistic, but I would say um, related frames of how young people are understood that limit our ability to see sort of positive agency on their behalf. So there's lots of examples from the show when young people, these young people are kind of pushing back and saying like, here, take me seriously. Um, mm -hmm. And then are kind of squashed by these frames. So I think in the opening scene, which I think you watched, Erin um, is having her diary read by her cousin Orla. And then she marches downstairs and she's complaining to her mom and she's saying, you know, teenagers have rights, you know, mom. And her mom just says, like, don't be ridiculous or something like that. And just completely, like, <laughs> dismisses her. And it's one example, yeah. but um, I think another one is James at one point. It's his first day um, at the girls' school, and it's an all-girls' school, but James is there. And he really has to pee. And he keeps asking the teachers and, and the sisters, because it's a, it's a Catholic school, um, can I, like, can I use a washroom? And they just keep saying, like, you can't use a washroom. It's a girls' school. Like, you can't go, you can't go in there. And at one point, he makes some claim of like this is a human rights abuse you can't do this i need to pee and he's just yeah. like completely dismissed and then i think he gets detention after that but so these yeah. are like these are funny examples but they reinforce this idea of like when young people try to claim their agency to claim their rights they're sort of just like belittled and infantilized and kind of put down um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i don't think that answered the second part of your question but the first, no, I, at least, is these are kind of frames that operate in a way that kind of limit and structure how we, we think about young people. And that's a really important piece to sort of dismantle if we want to incorporate them in a more meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, when you're saying these things, I, com I completely agree. Obviously, the first episode, it, it, it does it does address all these things. It, it, it takes to light kind of what people as young people experience all the time within their parents, you know, just living with their parents. Uh, whenever they challenge their parents on something, often it's I'm older, I'm the parent, I'm right, let's let's move on. Or, you know, especially whenever you're having pushback within school systems as well, is just like the, the clear example in the, in the show as well, is that you're going to have times where just because you're a youth, you are discredited uh, because of your age, right? And I feel like there is a lot of information and a lot of knowledge that's, that's being missed. And that's clearly the, the work that you're talking about is, is, is honing in on that. Uh, a prime example, I think, would be Greta Thunberg would be, mm -hmm. you know, people discrediting her because of her youth and, you know, and, and, and ignoring the fact that she's making really clearly like substantiated claims here. Uh, and there's there's constant backlash from certain groups, you know, just just a sentence essentially uh, discrediting her because of her age. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that kind of rings true for the work that you're talking about when it comes to youth peace building. So so what do we do with this group of people that that tend to use age as this metric of I am the senior person here, I have I'm more knowledge, because we always have that in every it almost seems like every system that we're in is based on seniority. And this idea that if you're here longer, you're more knowledgeable and, and less credit is given to those that are newer, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to age. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely. So I think the the one sort of big idea from the paper that I present is there really needs to be more effort towards meaningful and sustainable power sharing agreements um, between young people and adults. And of course, this means sort of like a complete rethink of who it is that has knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. But to sort of take a step back. Um, so in the show there, I think it's episode four where the girls 
Um, Erin somehow, I can't remember how, but she basically falls into the editor role of the school newspaper. And um, she finds this coming out story that was published anonymously through um, some sort of like essay competition or something. And Erin wants to publish it. Um, And she kind of rallies her friends to support her to publish this anonymous coming out story that was never intended to be to be made public. And they're at a very um, conservative school. It would be a big, big faux pas. And of course, they get a lot of pushback. The headmaster at first um, says no. They say we're being censored. The headmaster, of course, in typical fashion says, yes, you are. Get on with it. Like, go away kind of thing. Um, (laughs) Her parents all give them pushback and everyone just says, no, you can't do this. But eventually... Um, they decide they're just going to do it. And they go ahead and they publish this story. And when it comes out, uh, Sister Michael, who is the headmaster, um, finds out about it and basically just doesn't do anything. She kind of like laughs it off and is like, oh, okay, which is typical Sister Michael. She's very like apathetic towards everything and just can't be bothered. So she gave her like one attempt and then she was like, oh, okay, we're going to let it happen. And yeah. what happens in the, in, as a result um, is Aaron finds out that it was actually Claire who wrote the story. Um, and they get in a big fight. It's this huge ordeal. But then the scene ends with this beautiful moment of them coming together um, where they're at their school talent show. Orla's making a fool of herself on stage. And Aaron, as sort of like an implied apology to Claire, gets up on the stage and does this kind of ridiculous routine with her. Claire recognizes it. And they have this beautiful moment of friendship. And I, this is kind of a long-winded way of answering the question. But basically, I think what happens when there's environments that are supportive of young people testing their agency, allowed to be kind of creative and organic and how they choose to kind of um, engage with one another, while it might look kind of messy and disastrous at first, it can have these really remarkable and beautiful repercussions at the end of the day. So the point being kind of that young people deserve to operate in environments that will lend them a bit of authority and decision-making power. And that they'll be supported even if they fail at first, because it's not necessarily the immediate outcome that's important, but this process of them learning how to make these decisions um, to interact with one another, to have some of this authority in and of themselves, that's what's important. And so even though the girls kind of failed in a sense, where it was this huge catastrophe, it was this huge fight, it ended up being this really remarkable moment for all of them where they kind of overcame their own Um, biases and prejudices against um, uh, Claire, who is coming out as gay, and they kind of recognize that maybe they weren't comfortable with that, but now they are, and they realize they're still friends. And Sister Michael's kind of there, just like apathetically supporting them along the way. And even if it's apathetic, Mm -hmm. she's still kind of giving them this space where they're allowed to test their creative agency and have these wonderful outcomes. But if there is no willingness to kind of give up a little bit of authority to let the girls kind of take hold of the school newspaper and do what they want, they never would have had this moment to begin with. So there's kind of a messiness in of it, in it, um, in that they could fail. But there's that's kind of the importance. They need to be supported through that failure and working through it as well. Which again is kind of like I think a crazy idea, but I think adults fail in peace endeavors all the time, and they just kind of keep going with it. And we Absolutely. keep assuming that they're the ones who can make proper decisions. But who's to say that young people wouldn't be equally able to make some decisions? And they might fail too, but adults haven't been getting it right for a really long time. So maybe we should try something else. Why not give them the floor to learn on their own earlier so then they can become more more in, involved with, with at least understanding what didn't work? Whereas adults are just, you know, we learn from an older person that this is how they do it. Even if they fail 50% of the time, 
we're going to just learn from them and we're not going to have any input. Uh, at least it, it introduces the possibility of new ideas, new approaches that haven't really been thought of or been given enough credence. And I think that that's often something that uh, even researchers really benefit from hearing people that are new to the field or don't know anything about it because their perspective is fresh. It's it's mm -hmm. un it's unfettered by other biases and, and your experiences, right? And so that can really provide a new platform for growth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, again, I'm a social scientist, I'm a devs researcher, so I'm very idealistic <laughs> in a lot of, yes. of what I think should happen. Um, mm. And I think, you know, on paper, this sounds like a really wonderful idea, but there's a reason why peace processes function the way they do. And it's that there's a very institutionalized, powerful base that is supporting peace building in the way that it functions right now. And so to give young people a more meaningful voice and a more meaningful place within some of these decisions would really mean kind of thinking a little bit differently about peace in a grand scale of questioning some of these institutions and what they provide for peace and what they don't. And so I think there's, there's a lot of incentive to kind of maintain the status quo when it comes to peace building. Um, but what I'm saying is that shouldn't necessarily hold us back from envisioning a different way. I love operating right. in the space of like what should be. Um, yeah. And I hate the argument of like, you know, we've done this forever. So it's just it's just uh, the way it is. I like kind of mm -hmm. trying to push that and say, well, what what should it be like? What should we be striving for? And for me in this realm, it's young people having a kind of meaningful place at decision making tables, right. not just after and, the fact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and having a voice is really important. I'm curious with these peace building efforts, who is the one that's initiating is it at like these peace building? Is it across the board? Is it like the government that's like, okay, we need to do this? Is it external governments? Is it communities? Who is deciding and giving resources to these peace building efforts in most cases? Mm -hmm. I think at least in in kind of its uh, most international, most in institutionalized format, peace building is something that is heavily supported from the international community, often through the United Nations. But of course, they can't kind of just go into a country. So they're often invited in um, from the government uh, at the time saying, come and mediate this conflict, et cetera, et cetera, because they can't just kind right. of go into a country, as we know, um, yep. state sovereignty is, is a thing. Um, I mean, that's not to say there's not power dynamics on another scale of, of um, kind of coercion, et cetera, but that's a whole other debate. But I think for me, at least the UN plays a huge role um, in peace building processes and peacekeeping missions, um, these types of things. So oftentimes they're there as an intermediary, but it's often also with governments, warring factions, militaries, rebel groups, these kinds of actors are often the ones who are um, kind of at the table and would be the, the people who would be responsible for looking to young people and would be the ones who would be tasked with um, getting their incorporation. Yeah, absolutely. That's good information to know because I mean, general population, most people wouldn't have ever really experienced this or might not be experiencing this interaction, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it really is important to, to do these things and to provide these resources to youth in a lot of areas and a lot of aspects of uh, your community and just peace building in general, but like that actual peace building component where the UN's coming in, they really do need to have voice, like gain the voices of the youth and have that interaction with them to build that community. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's it's really cool work it's 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 so above what i'm used to, to talking about alina it's just you know it's it's that there's so much interaction between community resources and different nations and systems that are just it seems so daunting so how do you keep that in mind when it comes to the work like wh who are you trying to get your research out to is it, is it the un like who are you targeting what's your impact that you're trying to make with your work Oh man, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I know necessarily right now. Um, mm. I think I will say there's a, a huge correlation between academia and the practical component of peace building. Um, I will say, I think in recent decades, the UN has made a big shift um, in its approach to peace building. It's slowly adopted these more kind of locally grounded grassroots types of efforts in terms of peace building. And it is also important to note, um, a few years ago, they implemented, I think it was Article 2250 or something like that, that basically said young people deserve a, a place at the table and we need to incorporate their voices. My argument is obviously we need to not just include their voices in terms of like validating a model that's already there, but rather starting with their voices and designing the model out there. But I think there's been a lot of shift yeah. and I think academia has helped to push that shift in a lot of ways. So when peace building kind of first came onto the stage in the post-Cold War era, it was largely, I think, influenced by academics who were starting to write about these issues, who were seeing the failure of the United Nations to create a meaningful peace in places like, um, like Bosnia, like Rwanda, like Somalia, all of these different places. And they were saying something about it and saying we needed to kind of change. So I think, and I think a lot of practitioners too are also researchers of peace. So there's, there's this close relationship between the way peace is theorized within the academy and the way that peace is implemented in a practical sense. So I think my target audience is, is still within this, this cozy bubble of academia where I'm comfortable, mm -hmm. but I think there's a very close kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. Um, yeah. And I'm kind of always have my eye to what it means for, for how this is going to be done in practice. Um, because peace building yeah. is a very tangible, very real thing. It's not just kind of something that operates in theory. It's, it has to be grounded in, in real experiences and, and the practical um, experience of what peace looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you as researchers have that, the ability to go and look through what's worked and what hasn't worked in, in previous peace building efforts, right? And so, you know, that's exactly, you know, the, the paper you're writing uh, during COVID and the paper that you're gonna be working, like the papers you're working on now, they all inform uh, future generations as to what has been working, what hasn't. And, and the fact is, things haven't been working out perfectly. So we can always <laughs> improve on it. And maybe yeah, including youth in that conversation when structuring uh, these efforts uh, could really improve that uh, for the future. And I, 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 I couldn't see how that wouldn't be the case, right? Like I just, <laughs> it makes so much sense when you when the way you talk about it, uh, and the way that you've, you've structured your your argument. So uh, I mean, we can't continue to ignore youth, especially when our youth could be uh, 28 year olds uh, <laughs> like you and I. <laughs> so, I mean, we're still have something to say, even though we're young um, and, and, and just like, you know, 12 to 15 year olds or any anyone in that age range. Like it's 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 an awesome effort. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mean, you don't have to look very far to see examples of young people kind of demanding more influence. Um, I mentioned Black Lives Matter before you mentioned Greta Thunberg. Um, and the climate rallies that we had a lot of last year, maybe mm -hmm. mid COVID, I can't remember time is like so obscure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you really don't have to look that far to see young people demanding um, that the accounts, the accounts, the adults that are um, 
in positions of power that they're accountable, young people demanding justice, young people demanding reconciliation. Like you don't have to go far to see that young people are forced to be reckoned with. And so I think they need mm -hmm. to be um, appreciated for that. They are they are strong, they are capable and, and we should start paying more attention to them in a more meaningful way, not just kind of like this very apathetic, Artificial. like oh, I hear you, I yeah. see you, good, okay. We'll yeah. just tinker and then move on as opposed to really looking for fundamental change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, really, really cool, Lena. Is there anything else that we've missed? Because I mean, there, what you've talked about is so all encompassing. There's so much to it. Is there anything that you really want to let our listeners know about the work that you're doing, or any of the findings that you have um, that you think is worth highlighting? Um, I think I've sort of covered a lot of it in broad strokes. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if people yeah. haven't seen Dairy Girls, go watch it. <laughs> it's yeah. wonderful. Um, but no, I think I've, I've sort of touched on the big ones. I know there's a lot and there are lots of really big questions and these are not, there's no kind of like, again, definitive answer per se. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I hope, I hope people are, uh, hope people find it interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you love the gray area. I think this was a very good highlighting and showcasing <laughs> of the gray areas of, of youth peace building, um. And it's just it's just a new it's a new line of work for me that I'm really fascinated by. And I think our, our listeners will really enjoy hearing that as well. Awesome stuff. I'm so glad we finally had you on, Lena. <laughs> yeah, <me> uh, well. <laughs> I've been kicking myself to that I haven't gotten you on earlier. But I mean, it's perfect timing because the work just came out and, and you're excited about it. Um, so thanks again for coming on. It was, it was so much fun having you on. Yeah, thank you so much. No, this was great. And yeah, we'll keep in touch and I'll... Uh... Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, Alina, if anybody wants to reach out to you, has any questions about global development or you know youth peace building, any of the work that you're doing, you're on Twitter. I am on Twitter. I'm recently on Twitter, <laughs> so there's no I one saw there. That. <laughs> <laughs> I saw people uh, tweeting about the paper, and I was like, oh my god, I need to get a Twitter account now. So I am on I Twitter. I saw that. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, my contact information should be there, and it's also on the Queen's website as well. If anyone wants to chat, which I'm obviously happy to do. Awesome. Yeah. No, no, for sure. For sure. And we'll include all the information links to her new Twitter and her, her, her website <laughs> uh, on the show notes if you're interested to reach out to Alina. Again, Alina, this is fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> all right. That just about wraps up the episode. I hope that you enjoyed. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.